right, welcome back to Papers Featherless. I'm Justin. I'm Kerry. And we are back this time uh, analyzing Featherless paper number 25. The same subject continued. The powers necessary to the common defense further considered from the New York packet February, I'm sorry, Friday, December 21st, 1787, Alexander Hamilton to the people of the state of New York. And once again, welcome back to the Paperless Trailers podcast where we do a quick dive through each individual paper on each episode uh, to kind of get a better understanding of what was happening at the time and what was being said and to crack through the arcane and difficult and sometimes flowery language of uh, the writers to, to see what it is that they were trying to say, or what we think it is, at least um, open to interpretation to a point. But um, anyways, welcome to all those who are joining us and uh, Carrie. Uh, you want to do a, like a quick, short summary, and then we can jump in and knock this one out. What do you What do you think? Well, I think unfortunately that in papers twenty three and twenty four, we might have inadvertently stolen some of our own thunder, Justin. Stolen our own thunder. Spoilers. Yep, well, we in our ignorance jumped ahead. I think and discussed several things that are discussed in this paper. All right, but we'll still do this paper because we have well, to have an episode twenty five. Yeah, and you know what? Hey, much like Hamilton, that in prior papers beat people over the head with the same topic. Uh, we will, we will also beat people over the head with the same topic. So in case anybody happens to still be listening at this point in the podcast, thanks for sticking around. <laughs> what a great opening we had there. And uh, Carrie, if that doesn't to, want to make to you the, stick with us. To the couple while. listeners that are still around, <laughs> why don't you summarize paper 25? <laughs> well, this continues to discuss the issue of standing armies and sort of addresses a few remaining topics from paper 24 about the concerns to uh, the you know, defenders of American liberty about the dangers of having standing armies. But it also segues more into the idea of should, you know, what is the alternative to a strong federal military power? And the obvious alternative is state-run uh, military defense. Each of the states fends for themselves or the states as a body you know, have alliances and coordination between themselves to be the ones primarily responsible for their own defense. Um, and from there, he segues into the idea of, uh, okay, it, well, as I've said before, I being Hamilton here, as Hamilton said before, you know, if a foreign power such as Britain, Spain, or Native American you know, tribes were to attack America... They're not going to be a blanket threat that's going to attack all states on a per capita, per acre basis. They're not going to attack all equally. What they're going to do probably is to land in one or one or two states and have those be the spearhead of their operations. So, as has been previously discussed, when that kind of threat is evident, a state-centric defense is going to be problematic because that state that's invaded is going to bear a disproportionate percentage of the threat and fending it off. And states that are further away from that threat are going to tend to not not be as heavily uh, put upon to defend. And so is that fair? Especially here where he's writing to, again, stay in New York. New York, New York Harbor. You know, New York, uh, you know, is probably going to be one of those states that would be a higher priority for invasion. By a foreign power. And so he's trying to appeal to self-interest there. Um, in any case, he says, look, we've also also touched, we've also already touched at how if military power is focused at the state level, we're going to have the same problems we've already seen with states being rivals to one another. And using that military power to sort of feud with one another rather than to focus the military power in a national defense as a whole. You know. Mm-hmm. Although in fairness, I think more of the disputes between states were more commercial than military. But in any case, so that from that he transitions on to, look, we seem to all be agreed that there's going to be times in our national life where there's going, we're going to come under threat, we're going to come under attack, and we all agree we're going to have to have armies. The problem that some people seem to have is standing armies. And, you know... Is it really standing armies or just keeping existing armies in existence? He turns into a semantic issue of it's really about the definition of the word because are we going to have to wait until troops are on our shore to raise an army? No, that would be ridiculous. You can't do that. You have to, at some point before you're actually attacked, raise an army. 
But if you agreed on that, how long can you keep them up before someone actually invades you? A day, a month, a week, a year? Who's going to make that decision? And he seems to be saying, look, you see the word rabbit, wordplay rabbit hole we get into here where, you know, eventually you can't precisely define the difference between keeping in existence an army you just raised versus having standing armies. So it's a stupid debate to have. Um, in any case, he says, look, and if that's your definition of you can only raise an army and keep it in being when you're under threat, you know, you're going to have the same problem you're afraid of, of people gaming that system. Because at least if you have a standing army, you know that, okay, the federal government has a standing army. Everybody's suspicious of the federal government because they're so distant. You know, you could, so you'll know to be suspicious. You'll know to be on your guard. Versus if it's, well, we don't need to worry as much because they're only going to raise them with their threat. It'd be very easy for the executive to say, oh, the, in, the Native Americans are at it again. Or the British look like they're going to attack us. And to gain that system and to fabricate threats. Uh, he says, let's just be honest about it. And keep in existence the idea of a standing army. And then he closes with this idea of, look... Even the states that are most against standing armies in their actual constitutions, Massachusetts, Pennsylvania, they have in their constitution they can't have standing armies. But when push comes to shove and they have insurrections, they've ignored that. You know, when Shays Rebellion happened, when there's been unrest in Pennsylvania, they raised military forces to put them down. And if the, if the states that say they're the most against it, when push comes to shove and they're under threat, have to raise them and keep them up, that just shows how bankrupt their principles are. Let's just be open and honest about it from the first place. When when you're dealing with it, questions of national existence and you know whether you survive a conflict and continue to exist or are extinguished by a military rival, you can't... It's This sort of harkens back to his, art, his paper 23 about the unlimited power. You can't quibble about artificial... You know rules of sportsmanship and process. You've got to put you know everything on the line. He's, you know harkens back to some ancient examples of the Peloponnesians and the Lacedaemonian Commonwealth. Of they had these rules about not making the same person commander over and over again because it would centralize too much power. But when they got into wars of national existence, they just ignored those rules because if someone's led your military before and they've proven to be good at it and you're in a new conflict where you need your best, you're going to want to put in someone who's proven and good and not just put in some rank amateur and roll the dice on him just to satisfy a legal nicety. And so that's where paper 24 comes out is the, fed, the federal power has to have, the federal level has to have the power and ultimately military strength and the employment of the army is too important to be concerned about technicalities and artificial rules that we're not going to follow anyways okay that's my take that's your take that's my take um so how do you want to unpack all that where do you want to start well again i know that we've probably addressed some of it already um but i will say this this one seems to be a little bit more objective than the previous two there's no artificial objective observer telling us that Hamilton's right. Uh, he seems to acknowledge some of the points on the other side. And he seems to argue from logic more than conclusory reasoning. And so I like it a little bit more, I'll say that. Yeah. Just as a general thing. Okay. I think we're going to have to just uh, accept that we're going to be repeating ourselves a little bit because we've touched on some of these issues. All right. Well, let's repeat away. Let's go for it. Um, I will say also that I'm starting to see the point now of some of the more previous papers we've slogged through. Okay. That have let you know, I'm particularly thinking about some of the failed republics we've discussed in the past mm -hmm. and how, you know, some, some of them have been undermined uh, by making rules that weren't respected and ignored and it just undermined the legitimacy of all of the rules. Mm -hmm. Touches on that here. Uh, I'm thinking about the discussions he's had, I think it was particularly with the United Dutch Republic, of how 
some of the member states always f- bore a disproportionate board burden of the yeah. defense of all. Mm-hmm. And so, and the unanimity was that the Dutch that required the unanimous decision not only of all the yep. member states but also some of the cities as well. But when when push came to shove, Stop the unanimity the rule like kind of went out of the way, and they were like, well, whatever. Yeah. And and um, the more powerful states ended up getting yeah. a disproportionate share of a say in the national government. Yes, okay. that was the United Dutch Republic. Right. So. Uh, let's see. So he begins again by talking about this idea that you know, France, uh, Br- Britain, and Spain, and the Indian nations are all other neighbors, and and they don't border on one particular state, but they kind of border on a lot of the states. Um, and so the danger and the differs in degrees to the different states, and so therefore guarding against it should be sort of done at sort of a national higher level mm-hmm. than on individual state levels. Yeah, we got. Prepare for the entire threat that encompasses the entire country, and it doesn't just put one state into danger. Okay. He touches on that. Um, and jumping ahead a little bit, I can see how it's a, it's a duality of, you know, the powers of Britain and Spain and the different Native American nations are a threat of the whole. But you can also see his point later on, particularly with, you know, conflicts with Native American groups. Um, I can see there e- it being very easy for a national government to gain that system to keep a standing army in being mm-hmm. because, you know, pr- the different when there's a conflict with uh, Native Americans on the frontier, it's, it's not just like one Native American nation covering the entire frontier of all of no. the United States. Mm-hmm. It's lots of different ones. Mm-hmm. And also, do they necessarily feel compelled to follow Western European rules on formalistically declaring war and, you know, make here's this document we're going to give you. We're going to attack you 24 hours from now to give you preparation. No. And also the nature of those conflicts is that they could be constant and ongoing over a mm-hmm. course of years and not really... Subject to, oh, it officially began here and it officially ended on this date. Yeah. So those are strong points. Yeah. You know, I, I give him, he had a lot more persuasive weight for me in this paper than the prior two. And, you know, even though he doesn't demonstrate it in the military context, um, from his some from the discussions earlier on and from studying the history a little bit as we have, you can see how pre-Constitution... The states seem to dedicate a good part of their energy to bettering the circumstances of their own individual states without regard to neighboring states or the confederacy of states as a whole in regulation of their trade and conflicts over, you know, rivers that both bordered or territory multiple states had a claim to, as with New York and... um, New Hampshire regarding the territory of Vermont. Mm-hmm. And so you can see that. So you can believe his prior point is previously hit on of if you have this, you know, individual, here's the army of Virginia, the army of Massachusetts, etc., then they, those states might be tempted to use them more for state-focused ends than national ends. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, he mentions he, he talked about here, which I had this he had this one line in here that I thought was interesting about how that the members of the states would most likely be more local to unite behind their local state government than the mm-hmm. federal government. And I thought, mm-hmm. ah, I don't know if I still that I don't agree with that uh, anymore. Yeah, I think people, I think we discussed previously yeah. how that might be obsolete. Yeah, the notion of um, state membership and state loyalty versus the loyalty to the union yeah. is, is no longer, I think, applicable. Um, the changes in communications technology and how culture yeah. exists has has made that different than it was. I think there's maybe still some more regional things. People think of themselves as being in the Midwest or in the South in general. But, yeah, um, I agree with that. You know, uh, so, uh, but not to go too far down that prior rabbit hole. Uh, the other thing I noticed, he was an interesting point. He ends... Uh, Let's see, one, two, three paragraphs, three paragraphs in. And he ends with this uh, statement, says, For it is a truth um, which the experience of ages has attested. Uh, and I immediately, when I read that, I thought, oh, man, here we go. Another one of these universal truths that, you know, we're about to. But, you know, it's I kind of. a law yeah. of nature. Yeah. He loves to um, put things beyond debate. But he goes, uh, that the people are always most in danger when the means of injuring their rights 
are in the possession of those with of whom they entertain the least suspicion. And I thought, well, you know, that makes that makes sense. Like, yeah. you know, uh, if if and so and he he puts it there because he says, look, if if the armies that could, you know, be used to uh, subvert and 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 um, crush a state legislature or put down a, um, a gathering of people or an expression of uh, dissent uh, were held at the state level and made amongst and by uh, made up of people that other people knew within the community, mm-hmm. they'd be less suspicious of, of that ever yeah. actually happening. So they wouldn't be wa- exactly. watchful. Whereas if it's some unknown federal head that has the army, you know, people would be much more closely engaged and yeah. watching to make sure that, that army wasn't being abused. Because they and, don't have any illusion that they know that person, they're a good person. Yeah. It's a distant authority. Whereas, you know, Mayor Jones, who you see every day at church, mm-hmm. you know, you don't necessarily think that they're going to do anything bad because, oh, I know that person, they're a friend of mine. Surely to God, he wouldn't be doing anything against my interests because we're yeah. friends. Yeah. So uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, statement he made. And I guess I kind of have to say I agree with him. I think people are probably a little more suspicious of and we've talked about this before i mean how much do you pay attention to your local government like none like i you know virtually you never hear anybody talk i mean i know there's local news but uh, you know for the most part it snows you're not paying attention to when that i mean you just expect that the street piles exactly you're upset if the street isn't plowed but the assumption is that the local government's got it and you don't really i mean i don't even know who's in charge of plowing by roads i just know that they get plowed like you know if there's a fire breaks out i expect the fire department to show up right uh and so there's a lot of much more focus and attention is on the federal level like what's the federal doing what are they doing you know uh who's saying what who's doing what uh and the assumption is that the local government's going to hum along without much you know yeah and i think that's the point he's making here with the armies. If the armies are held locally, the assumption is that they won't do anything wrong because it's it's local and they'll just do the things that are right. But yeah. if it's at the federal level, it's much more closeful scrutiny. That's similar with, to what you're saying. I um, agree with it. That general state generalized statement for maybe slightly different reasons. Of again, back then, without any you know national media, you know, and slow transportation, people who lived more locally were sort of who. That they were your tribe, you mm-hmm. know. Of hey, w- these are the people who I sort of see every day. We're we all know, you know, all of us living in Frontier Kentucky. We know what it's like to live in Frontier Kentucky. Yeah, and so we trust each other because we have that shared experience. Versus somebody who lives in Maine. urbanized, yeah. Well, not Maine, Rhode Island. Yeah. I would just say like Boston, Massachusetts yeah. back then. That's more urbanized developed area back then. But anyways, I don't think it. I think uh, a better example nowadays would not be so much the local versus state versus federal government, but the tribalism that's much more prominent in like people of a common political persuasion, for example, mm-hmm. and where I think that you're an, any given person is more likely to let someone in their own tribe or group get away with something than someone in the other side. Like mm-hmm. the exact same program. You know, if I'm a Republican or if I'm a Democrat and my side does it, yeah. they're like, well, it was probably, I'll tend to presume there was probably a good reason for it. Mm-hmm. Whereas if the exact same thing, the other side does it, I'd be like, wait a second. Mm-hmm. You know, and that's played out in some, you know, many times in U.S. history. The most, uh, the best example off the top of my head is how uh, when Nixon opened up diplomatic relations with China. Mm-hmm. Um he was able to do that um, partially because, slightly different point, he was widely seen as being very strong on communism. So whereas if a, if a Democrat had done that, they would be pilloried for being soft on communism. But for him, who was known to be hardcore on anti-communist to do it, he had more leeway. Mm-hmm. And so my because people weren't suspicious that he was paving the way for a communist takeover of the United States, he had more ability to do it, whereas um, he could he got away with it more yeah. because yeah. of that. Yeah. So I agree I agree with that point. Okay. Going back briefly though to this issue of sort of a state committee of defense as being an alternative to a national army, um, there's a lot of support in history for that sort of notion of uh, you know, we've had several to- several instances in the 20th century and 21st, to a lesser extent, of 
not just war between nations, but war between alliances. And, you know, the best examples I could think of was World War One and World War Two, And the ability of the different countries to coordinate yeah. played a significant role in who won and who lost. Yeah. Uh, you know, for example, in World War Two, the Axis alliance of Germany, Japan, and Italy mm-hmm. were each individually pursuing independently their own ends through their own means and didn't coordinate closely at all. And they constantly had problems because of that. You know, Germany had to clean up several messes of Italy. Yeah. Um, you know, Germany might have been assisted in attacking the Soviet Union if Japan would have also attacked, but it wasn't in Japan's interest to do so. By contrast, the Allies in that war had an Allied Council, and they all planned together. They all discussed, you know, grand objectives, and they might sacrifice their own individual ends to somewhat, to some extent, to help the Alliance move forward as a whole. Um, and one of the main mechanisms they did that was by compromising the interests of the individual members to an extent. And I think that tends to speak to what Hamilton's saying is without some kind of external controls, then the individual member's human tendency is going to be to maximize their own benefit and not care about the whole so much. Um, because that's one of the reasons that the Axis lost in World War II is they pursued their own ends exclusively you know, and followed that natural tendency because that takes no effort to pursue your own ends. It takes effort to compromise your own interests and serve the interests of a larger entity. So I, I tend to agree with them there. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, just for the reader, then Hamilton gets into this idea of like, you know, what, what qualifies as a standing army? You know, I like, think that's one of the most interesting parts of the paper, to yeah. be frank. Uh, you know, is it standing if we raise it a month before we get attacked? Is it standing if we keep it a week, a month, a year after the war is done? Like, what, what, when does it become a standing army? What's this? What? what how do you define what is a standing army? And he raises a good point. You know, because you can't instantaneously develop an army, and you can't shut it off the second the war is done. Yeah. Uh, either. So when do you? Uh, when's it? When's it transition from? Oh, we're winding down to. And that question has become even harder to answer in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. You know, when there's, like, as we addressed in the previous paper, you know, it's one thing to have a, in, you know, instantly raise an, inst- an army in response to a foreign threat back in, you know, the late 1700s, where yeah. basically everyone has a musket in their house and some amount of ammunition. When there's a threat, yeah, you grab it, you all show up on the village green, boom, <laughs> you got yourself a, a regiment. Or, yeah. you know, whereas you know, nowadays, you know, weapon systems can yeah. take years decades. or decades to yeah. develop, and you can't wait until the threat happens. You know, and, so, and then the training necessary to use a F-22 fighter is a little bit more than being able to use a rifled musket. Yeah, just and, smidge, yeah. and so you're not going to have somebody who makes shoes in their everyday life just come out and fly. And then say, "Hey, yeah. we need you to run a bombing mission yeah. over Iraq for us if you can." It's like I, you seem like you're pretty good at making shoes, so you're probably going to be able to hit this target. Also, <laughs> I would assume. I mean, I'd imagine that the ability to put a a, a sturdy sole on a athletic shoe. And the ability to understand modern avionics have significant overlap. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they don't. They don't have significant <laughs> overlap. Yeah. <laughs> um, so uh, you know, all so Hamilton, I think we both agree, make make some pretty good points there. Um, and then he goes in in the next paragraph that uh, talks and says, you know, suppose that the utility of uh, provision of this kind can only be found. On the supposed probability, or at least possibility, of a combination between the executive and legislature in some scheme or usurpation, and should this any time happen, how easily would it be to fabricate the pretense of an approaching danger? So he says, you know, uh, let's just assume for a second that the legislature and the executive sort of decide to work together in in funding and having a standing army. 
you know, what, are you, what are we really going to do about it? They're just going to constantly say, oh, well, hey, there's more Indian activity on the frontier. Yeah. If you they know, want to abuse it, they're already going to be they, abusing they're it. They're going to be abusing it, and they can mm-hmm. abuse it. You know, And and he he talks about, you know, oh, there's Indian habitations, or there's Britain, or there's Spain. But in modern-day parlance, it's just the constant, like, oh, something bad might happen, so we need to have a standing mm-hmm. military in case, you know, to ward off this constant threat that maybe one day might happen somewhere. Yeah. Um, and I think that will probably ring true for what it is with, with people who are listening. The, the constant, the, mm-hmm. the, the idea that even then Hamilton says, look, if executive legislature wants to use fear to... to, to, to they're going to be able to do that. They're going to be able to do it yeah. in, order, in order to fund and support and, and justify a large military presence. They're going to do it. Yeah. If they want to do it, they're going to do it. And to you me, it's be, especially <laughs> in the area of the, the threat of conflicts with Native American communities, because yeah. I, I'll admit that you know that aspect of American history. You know the individual conflicts between different Native American tribes and frontier groups on the yeah, you know, in America yeah. is not my forte. Neither, but for me, from my high level view of it, it seems to me reading you know that part of early American history mm-hmm. that it was pretty much like there was pretty much constant states of some level of conflict like, on the frontier. Yeah, on almost on a I yearly can't basis. Why? <laughs> and I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not laying blame. <laughs> Um, but uh, that being the case, accepting that as a given that there is constant conflict there, yeah. then there's your constant standing army right there. Yeah, or the need for one. Yeah. What's I mean? Yeah. What's your threshold? Is yeah. there you know one small community that's had some missing pe- people go missing? Yeah. Is it wiping a town out? Is it you know a, a trading you know group or trapping group was ambushed? Um, you're going to be able to find some. Cause us belly, some mm-hmm. level of to justify. Well, we need to send out. We need to build forts out there. We need those people to man those forts and be able mm-hmm. to respond in the moments. And there's your standing army right there. Yep, yep. Because the everybody out there who's not in the regular army is going to have jobs that they got to do, mm-hmm. and if, most of the jobs are going to be ones that you can't just sit in a fort in the middle of nowhere to do and get by on. You know, especially like farming mm-hmm. and things of that nature. So, strong point. And, you know, again, strongest with the, the Native American conflicts, but even with like Spain and Britain, you know, they're mainly going to start. But yeah. I, we've discussed already in prior yeah. papers how there was constant uh, low level naval flare ups, you know, maritime flare ups between the United States and different nations of, mm-hmm. you know, British ships. See, you know, wanting to seize and inspect American vessels, you know, without mm-hmm. justification to do so from the do so from the American perspective, you know, the Mediterranean pirates mm-hmm. confiscating uh, American ships and cargoes and enslaving crews, um, even our old allies in France of wanting to be repaid back money that they spent on assisting America in the Revolutionary War, and what uh, you know, especially in the by the partially in money. And partially by insisting the United States declare war on Britain with them um, later, you know, towards the end of the 18th century. And when the United States disagreed, there was naval conflicts occasionally in the Caribbean between American and French ships. Mm-hmm. And so, like, that was a constant fixture. And so, I agree that there's not just this, what tri- what was the semantic difference between keeping a standing army and just preserving an army that you made to face a threat? But also, there's a threshold question of what's a good, what's a sufficient cause to create an army or a navy, and yeah. what's a sufficient cause to say the danger's passed and we can now face them out. Yeah. So then Hamilton turns to that next idea where he says, "Well, if, if, you know, the other the other approach is to end up formulating a government in the United States that has basically never been seen, which is, uh, you know, a government that." Is basically incapacitated by its constitution that 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 can't raise or do anything until after we're attacked, uh, yeah. and you know, and we have to expose our property and our liberty to the mercy of foreign invaders and invite invite them with our own weakness yeah. and the naked and defensive prey because we're afraid that rulers that were created by our choice and dependent upon our will might endanger liberty by an abuse and means necessary. To his preservation, and here again, I will say that seems like a clause that could be taken out of context and used in a modern-day scenario to trumpet the drums of war or constant 
um, military state. Yeah. And if you don't read the paper as a whole or all the papers collectively, you know, if you pluck and pull the parts that you want, you can find things from which to argue. Well, Alex, you know, Hamilton said this, that, you know, so we must follow it like it's from word on high. And, yeah. I, you know... I, I, I would never take I don't I don't take that approach I don't think that the approach should be taken to the Federalist Papers uh, and that's why we're doing this so and, and just for my own and our, yours our own edification uh, but you know the phrase that came to mind when I read that paragraph of you know how if we follow if we follow these general principles to an irrational extreme that we're basically destroying ourselves for the purpose of this principle is that old quote I remember hearing a lot in law school which is uh, the constitution is not a suicide pact mm-hmm. which, which you know is uh, from Judge Posner and uh, it's meant to speak to the larger point of hey you know the provisions of the constitution are very very important but when you get to a point where as a court or as a society you're saying that we have to observe the Constitution by applying it in such a way that it's undermining what holds us together as a country, then you have to realize that you're going too far. You're going over the edge. Yeah. And that's what the you know, Constitution yeah. is not a suicide pact. It doesn't mandate that we do anything that would, you know, we adjudicate ourselves out of existence from mm-hmm. the consequences of yeah. what we're ruling on just to maintain our constitutional purity but again as you have said there it's the larger point that you were pointing out of every even that statement mm-hmm. can be taken to extremes mm-hmm. of you know that can be used to justify anything of like okay yeah result-based adjudications of you know what if the you know this particular civil liberty by upholding it we're making our country less strong so we need to suspend that you know mm-hmm. you know speech against the country or, you know, um, yeah. uh, things that will make it more expensive for the national government to acquire things and, you know, to do certain things. You know, so it's, the Constitution is not a suicide pact, so we have to ignore those things. Yeah. You know, it, it to me, it just lo- more largely counsels against extremism and oversimplification mm-hmm. because, yeah, it's easy to, if you have an outcome-based reasoning, it's easy to pick and cho- pick and choose – to get to the outcome you want if you start with your conclusion and use justification to prop it up and you know easy answers are easy easy answers are fun because you don't have to think too much and you don't have to struggle you feel like okay here's the answer i just do whatever hamilton said and everything will be grand and one lesson from this these papers is hamilton in common with the rest of the founding fathers He's a very intelligent individual with a lot mm-hmm. of good ideas, but like the rest of them, sometimes he goes off the rails. Yeah, and and like the rest of them, you you can't take one idea mm-hmm. in a vacuum or one phrase in a vacuum and use it to as 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 like the word on high that can then be you know. Dictating entire policy moving forward. Yep. You know exactly. Or how society should function because of one slice of a paragraph. Say, well, Alexander, you know, Hamilton said this, so you know it must be. And I, you know, many of these ideas and concepts are too complex and too involved to fit down into a slice of a paragraph Mm -hmm. or you know 280 characters um, statements. And so as a result. You know, you you need you need more text to understand the complexity. So that's of why emotions. we're doing this thing as a podcast and not a Twitter stream. That's right. <laughs> okay, here's it's my like, okay. 140 it's characters why, or 280 characters on. Uh, it's paper why there 25. was it's why there was 86 of these papers written by two with a little bit of effort from John Jay and <laughs> and and. I'm never Still, letting I'm never letting John Jay off the hook. You got uh, <laughs> save save your bitterness, save your bile or your venom for John Jay for when he for comes another, back. All right, in. for when he comes back, and there's one last effort. So my my point in all of this is that many things in the law are not so simplistic that you can boil it down to a simple statement. What I will say to that is, 
don't even know where I'm going with this. Some of this might get edited out. I thought what you were going on this yeah. is that's one of the points that Hamilton goes next is saying that war is, you know, war is an art and war is a science where yeah. just like any other profession, you can't just wake up one day and decide you're going to start making silverware or start blacksmithing with no prior training and expect it's going to turn out right. Yeah. Similarly, if you're a nation trying to preserve itself from being destroyed by another nation, you mm-hmm. can't rely on a bunch of rank amateurs who have never shot a gun before in anger. And, you know, I got this impression that in the wake of the Revolutionary War, that there was sort of this unrealistic, romanticized view by a lot of the, of the militias. Of how great the militias were. This you know, even nowadays, yeah. you still there's so, so some of the romanticism of the Minutemen. Of like yeah. these people who are all just like by day had other jobs, and just and, showed up, and then and, when there was danger, they ran to the closet, they grabbed their gun and their powder horn, and <laughs> they fought the British in the afternoon and pushed them back, and the next day they woke up and they farmed the land. Yeah, uh, you get that impression. Oh yeah, and you could tell that Hamilton, the, he. He knows it's wrong. He knows it's not true. Yeah. But he also is afraid to push back too heavily in it because it seems to be widely held. Well, it's a popular. It's a popular. At the time, it seemed very that. popular. I think it's still a popular myth now that yes. you know the citizen soldier that went out and you know birthed a nation and pushed yes. back an empire. Amongst military and, historians, it's been widely debunked. Yeah, but that's that's the but you know, popular image. Your your popular images are in textbooks of the Boston Tea Party. Yeah. You know, and uh, what are some of the other ones um, that that are. Bunker Hill. Okay, that yeah. That was more militia. Yeah, yeah, that was a yeah. citizen soldier action. Um, and those are the, the, the paintings of those that are famous, mm-hmm. uh, that are in every in most elementary school textbooks in the nation that it, most people in this country were taught. And that you're not, you know, and it's, oh, by the way, the French helped out some. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> off to the side, right, right? Yeah. And, you know, they helped out a lot. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, so... We have a romanticized version of our own history, for sure. I can tell Hamilton's frustrated by that because yeah. he was there. Yeah. You know, Hamilton was, uh, you know, he was a guy, he was a soldier on the scene in the Revolutionary War. He was right there as an aide, you know, right there helping out Washington. And I think he and Washington shared a frustration from knowing how horrible and ineffective the militia was. Because mm-hmm. there's tons of accounts, especially of Washington's frustration, of where over and over again in military conflicts, they were on the verge of winning, but the only thing you could ever rely on the militia for was to break and run the first time they got shot at. Over and over again, Mm -hmm. the militia was so heavily romanticized, but when push came to shove and there was a line of redcoats who were firing a combined volley at them, they'd take a volley or two and you'd only see the back of their shirts and heels as they're running away. Mm -hmm. And... You know, it's very diff- it was very difficult for a military commander to capitalize on that. I think the best example in my mind being the Battle of Cowpens, mm-hmm. where the American leaders said, you know, use the use the cowardice of the militia and the fecklessness of them to get advantage. Where he said, all I want you guys to do is stand up, fire once, and run the hell away as fast as you can, like you always do. He didn't say the last part, <laughs> and be- and he didn't put anyone on the front line except for the militia. And they stood up, they fired, and they ran for all their hearts were worth. And all of his real soldiers, the regulars, were a mile or two back. His militia ran right past them. The British broke ranks chasing what they thought was a rout. Yeah. And then they were, all un- they were all in a broken rank and completely undisciplined when the regular soldiers stood up and unloaded right in their face. Yeah. And that's how he used them effectively. But yeah. to the real generals and leaders in the war, they themselves knew how awful the militia was compared to the regulars. But they couldn't push back against that common misconception because everybody wanted to think of the citizen soldier hero image. Yeah, that was so appealing to them. Yeah. Uh, so that was one of Hamilton's point, and, and I think we both agree with what Hamilton was saying. Uh, I think in my larger point that I was getting at earlier was just that many of these things in this paper, uh, in, in this one paper, or in all of these papers, and then the law in general are too complex to be boiled down into. Into simple vacuumless, uh, uh, taken in a vacuum, into simple statements. Yeah, as an isolated, and as an isolated statement that then, therefore, you should be able to run off with and use to guide how you function in the world. You have to have a broad, broad, wide knowledge 
uh, base to see mm-hmm. how things are interrelated in order, in order, and have the context and when things were said, in order to be able to make. I don't, I don't even know how to say it. Um, I'll probably edit that. In out. order to make informed and well informed, informed and well reasoned decisions. Thank in order to be a well reasoned man. <laughs> in order to be a well reasoned man. Thank <laughs> you. Well reasoned individual. Oh, all right, that's where we're at. Well, one. Like, I want us all to be Hamilton's well reasoned man. I guess. I don't know. One thing for these, you know. <laughs> We've, in looking at these first three papers here that focus on the military power of the United States and where it should be vested at the federal level and how, um, I'm surprised so far, and maybe he'll get into it in the next few papers, that he hasn't really addressed mitigating strategies to rein in possible excesses of standing armies. Yeah. Because so far... In That's papers true. 23, 24, and 25, it's it's all or nothing arguments. Up. Well, Either you're all in or you're all out. Either we got to vest all power in the federal yeah. power to defend us, or we just have to just surrender. So one of the prior criticisms was that, hey, look, we had this really, under the Articles of Confederation, there was this fallacy and assumption that the states would come through in mm-hmm. times of need. And that they would all come through... Uh, uniformly, and mm-hmm. and you know, not once one state wouldn't have to carry the heavier load mm-hmm. versus another, and that's an assumption that was made under the Articles of Confederation, and therefore, you shouldn't. We should have made that assumption, and look how bad that assumption was. But he doesn't yep. go to talk to like he's making an assumption here that mm-hmm. that uh, a housing of military power in the federal at the federal level will always is just will be okay and yeah. there won't be any problems that will result from it that we need addressing yeah. there's um, no in between it's either great or it's awful and there's nothing between yeah there's no um, nuance like why not why can't there be um, a system mr hamilton in which some of the decision making about military efforts were left at the state level mm-hmm. and and uh it wasn't all a national decision making process why yeah. why not have a Maybe even a layer of, of, of check and balance that isn't always maybe enacted, but could be enacted. Yep. Ladder down the Rhine, lest something go off the rails. The states could do something to rein in the federal authority that went too far beyond what, say, a supermajority of the states wanted to see happen. So, yeah. like, there's not, he, there's just absolutely no check that the state can then do on the federal level. And Hamilton says, you know, you used to have that. You no longer can subject yourself to that because the Constitution under that version would 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 uh, make make the the federal government uh, inept it just and, seems you know, unusual to me because the entire tone and tenor and perhaps genius of the constitution is equivocation and compromise you know it's like the constitution what one of the things that makes it so workable as a founding document um is the idea that it accepts as a facial premise that a lot of the problems it's trying to solve are essentially unsolvable. Mm-hmm. And so this is just a working compromise not to get to the perfect and with no illusion that it was perfect. if you follow this, mm-hmm. you're never going to have any problems. But here's what we're doing for now. And here are some of the guiding over- overwhelming principles that we're going to try to put forward as ways when it's not clear what we want in this document to adjudicate that. Mm-hmm. And... Um, it's a stark contrast to sort of the more back, black and white absolutist positions taken by Hamilton. Hamilton here, because even the things we hold most sacrosanct, we we take with some grain of salt of like, okay, but there's exceptions to that also. You know, mm-hmm. one of the things that I was thinking about and looking at this and comparing it, comparing it to is like the Bill of Rights itself. I think when people think, you know, what is something you would consider to be beyond compromise beyond reproach absolute and people would say well the 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 right the inviolable rights that are recorded in the bill of rights mm-hmm. but when you look at the actual text of what's funny about them is almost every one of them has an out mm-hmm. you know it's like they are general principles that like we should generally try to do that this except for then mm-hmm. like one going to today's theme you know, about the military and uh, military power and what the federal government should be allowed to do with it. Returning again to the ill, not very often quoted, Third Amendment. Okay. You know, that 
you know, the Third Amendment deals with quartering of soldiers. And frankly, when I, in my, in my mental shorthand, I, if someone asked me, what's Third Amendment about, Carrie? I'd say, oh, the government's not allowed to put troops in your house. Just mm-hmm. can't do it. Building barracks, deploy them elsewhere, but they can't come in my house. That's not what it says. It says, no, sh- no soldier shall, in time of peace, be quartered in any house without the consent of the owner. And that's where I put my mental period. Mm-hmm. But that's not where the period is. It says, comma, nor in time of war, comma, but in any, but in any manner prescribed by the law. So that just says, don't do this unless you say you can. <laughs> so, like, generally speaking, mm-hmm. I think, you know, we Americans think, okay, we shouldn't have soldiers stuck in our house or anything. And yeah. Should, that's very, very important. But it contains in there the germ of... If we ever run into serious problems and like we really, really need to, we might it. have to pass a law saying <laughs> you're going to have to have soldiers in their house. You know, similarly, a much more often thought about in the legal circles, Fourth Amendment. You know, that you know, you can't, you know, you write to the people to be secure in the person's houses, papers, and effects against unreasonable seizures and searches shall not be violated, and no warrant shall issue. But upon probable cause, supported by oath or affirmation, and particularly describing the place to be searched and the persons or things to be seen. So most people just think they're Fourth Amendment. Well, you can't just go and arbitrarily deal with my, you know, take my, you know, look through my stuff. Yeah. But they're out is, but you can if you follow the process. Yeah, you get process. You go get a search warrant. And bring it back to this paper. That's Which, what I'm, I would just say from my own personal experience is it is exceedingly easy. Oh yes, to get a search warrant. Exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes, it, it, but going back to these paper, this paper, it's like that's why I'm surprised it's not in here. That like, and again, might be in future papers of, you know, we're, you're not likely to bring everybody in together on a consensus on this all or nothing argument. Either yeah. unlimited power of the federal government, um, unlimited ability to have a standing government, or nothing. Mm-hmm. It's just like it's putting in such stark terms. You're not likely to get people to sign on who already aren't on a position or don't really care that much. Yeah, I'm much more curious for what I haven't seen here so far, which is okay. Suppose we put the suppose we do listen to you and we put the military power at the, all at the federal level with, without much restrictions. Say we do have standing armies. I'm more interested from you, Hamilton, in. What existing safeguards are in the Constitution to make sure that it's not a threat to liberty and stays not a threat to liberty? And what we might consider going forward to supplement the Constitution with statutory Mm -hmm. law to make sure that liberty is preserved, even if everything that could go wrong regarding military authority does. And I hope we see that. Because that's one of the reasons that we try to look at the Federalist Papers and other founding documents is... To try to get insights from the founding fathers on, okay, we're so we're de- we're looking at these perennial problems that pop out throughout history, unsolvable problems. What can we do to do our best to reduce the bad and maximize the good for mm-hmm. those? Uh, again, that's what I'm hoping to see more of in 26 on. Well, we will see uh, where we end up. Is anything else here? Uh, well, you didn't talk about the last. Do we do we want to go into the Lacedonians and Peloponnesian confederacies at all? I mean, Hamilton does uh, has a passing blow to them as well. Well, I mean, I don't know what, how much you want to add beyond yeah. what I took out of it, which was like, look, Massachusetts and Pennsylvania were exactly like the Lacedonians and Peloponnesians in that all of them have these rules of. Even, you know, we're never going to do this no matter what. Never, 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 never going to do it until they actually felt like they Push had to do it. And they felt like and they, they had to do it. it. And they did it's, anyways, yeah. The, the question that Hamilton seems to raise there is, if What's there's the these rules that people are going to ignore whenever it's actually important. Why have them? Why have them in the first place? Only write rules that you're actually going to respect because otherwise, if you write these rules and every time it's important you ignore them, you undermine the sanctity and authority of the law in general. Yes. And, and that, from an, as an attorney, I, could, I tend to agree, agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. You know, he made that point before when we were talking about the Dutch. I don't know if we've already mentioned it today or earlier here. That's what I kept um, going back to. It was, was the Dutch public mm-hmm. and the, the requirement of unanimous uh, decision-making unless when they decided they didn't need to have it. You know, yeah. you know it was kind of like, well, what's the point? You know, like yep. if you hear a rule, you're not going to follow it, then 
What's the point? I think so, there was some a similar discussion by him of ancient Greek city states, I believe, mm-hmm. and like how control and power should rotate, yeah, and be apportioned, and what it was on paper and what it was in reality were two different things. And so for me, that's I tend to agree with that. I don't have much against it. No, um, you know, so I guess there could be an argument against it, but I feel like I, I'd not be the right person to make it because, yeah, in my mind. If you just want to put something down as aspirational principle, phrase it as that. If you if you phrase it as an absolute prescription of law that shall never be break broken, yeah. and then you break it, then it, it tends to call in question call into question generally. That's well, how, is everything just a suggestion rather yeah, than a law? Yeah, that's how rights become privileges, right? Exactly. Um, where what you used to have as a right is now a privilege, and you you have you can enjoy it as long as the government doesn't feel like they exactly. take it away from you. Exactly. Um, I mean, I will say, generally speaking, I'm not. A, I don't really care to dive too heavily into some yeah. of his whenever he no, talks I mean, about ancient history. Um, I, that's so I'm not very yeah. heavily tempted to go there. That's okay. I think we I think we touched on it enough. So if we're both satisfied, that's all really matters. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, no I, I think we've framed yeah. up what the issues are up, here yeah. in 25. I'm interested to see if we get into sort of mitigating strategies in 26. On. Yeah, and see because I think how much I, looking ahead a little bit, I think that this series on military power continues all the way through paper 29. Mm-hmm. So we're about halfway through, and so I'm hoping in these remaining, let's see, 26, 27, 28, 29, four, four papers. That we're going to segue into, okay, now I've convinced you that we need a national military power. Here's how we're going to stop it from being a threat to liberty. So okay. that's what I'm looking forward to. That Whether be I'll good. be satisfied or not, I'm, I'm not going to kid myself and never satisfied. There you go. All right. I'll just have something different to grumble about. All right. Well, uh, with that in mind, uh, uh, we'll just say goodbye for now. We'll see you guys uh, next time. See you in 26. All right. Thanks. Mm-hmm.